so part of what I hope to have done in my book is to disabuse people of this notion when I tell them where I'm from and this kind of wrinkle comes across their brow and they want to say, oh, gee, you must have grown up so poor. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. All right, another week. Appalachia Meets World. It's Will and Neil here again. What's going on, my brother? Quite a bit. It's getting busy here. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, you know things are things are changing up in Cleveland. Re- recent changes. Yeah, team talking names about to are the, changing. To the baseball team, yeah. Yeah, names Still changing. Longer. The the Guardians still have the I E N S at the end though. Yeah, they kept that part. Tried to mimic the logo. Looks like. Yeah, I think they tried to stay as much the same as possible without being the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Uh, I think it's a, it's not a bad name. I mean, if you know, so we have a bridge up here and there's two statues that, that are, when you go over the bridge, like, you know, are standing at each side and they're called the Guardians. I don't know if it's the Guardians of the Bridge or if it's the Guardians of Cleveland, but I think that's where they got the name. I don't mind. I think it's a pretty cool name, but obviously we know why they changed it. I don't have any complaints there, really. Yeah, I didn't really mind Indians. Honestly, didn't bother me. It didn't bother you, but it did bother some people, so. I mean, you know, I understand. I guess it does. I I guess it can be, but it's also a way of uh, remembering, and uh, I would be I would be honored if there was a team named after me in that sense, I guess. Again, you would be, but if there are other people that are complaining about it, then even if it's the minority complaining about it, it doesn't mean it's right, you know? You call them the Warrens. I'd be tickled to death. <laughs> I think that's a little bit different. Maybe if we buy the team, we can name it the Warrens. You cool with that? Sure, yeah. The Warrens, <laughs> the Warrens it is. <laughs> so so we have on tonight dr william h turner goes by bill so bill dr bill turner who is getting ready to release a book that he just wrote called the harlan renaissance pretty cool book about growing up black in in lynch kentucky um, if you don't know where lynch is it's in harlan county kentucky so the book it hasn't been released yet but we're, we're going to talk to him about it. But before we did that, I, I wanted to just give a little bit of a backdrop on the Great Migration. So you know what the Great Migration is, right? Yeah. You know, for the listeners that don't know, the Great Migration was the mass exodus of blacks from the south to the north back in the mid-1900s. But before that, there was this migration even a couple generations before what we consider the great migration, there was another migration that kind of took a bypass to Appalachia, to the coal coal fields of Appalachia. And around 1910, there was this, you know, everyone knows there was the coal boom. Coal was the source of energy and the main ingredient in manufacturing steel. And U.S. Steel moved to Harlan County in 1910 and built what we refer to as company towns, right? Mm -hmm. They literally built the entire town of Lynch, a lot of the towns around there. But just to give you some numbers, in 1910, Harlan County was producing 2,000 tons of coal. And by 1918, they were producing 3 million tons of coal. So in 1910, they had 170 workers. In 1918, they had 4,000 workers. And by 1930, they had uh, over 12,000 workers in the coal mines. So you you could imagine that people were moving there for opportunity and where they were getting some of their workers were from further from the South. A lot of the workers were coming from central Alabama, which at the time, Alabama was uh, one of the most mineral rich states in the country. And so they already had some established miners down there that were traveling up to this part of Appalachia for work. And so this region really became populated with 
African Americans or blacks um, in in this area to the point that before the coal boom, um, there was little to no blacks in Lynch and Harlan County. And after the, the boom, by the 1920s, Harlan County was almost 12% black. So just imagine that. I, I mean, th- this entry of, of that many blacks to this area, some amazing numbers, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think uh, just to learn a little bit about the history is, is great to have that perspective f- for us. And I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Turner more about it here in a few and getting his experience on with us so everybody else can hear. Uh, I know it's going to be interesting. I know it's going to be uh, a learning experience for the two of us. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I don't know if we said this, but, you know, he grew up in Lynch in the 40s during this time that we're talking about. At one, at one time, and it, I'm sure he'll touch on this, but I think you, you've mentioned it to me before, which is, I guess kind of how I learned it, but uh, Harlan County was at one time the third largest county in the state of Kentucky. Yeah, now, behind, behind Jefferson and Fayette. Yeah, now the population of Harlan and is 26,000. Harlan County? I guess I should probably get my facts straight. I think that's... I think that's Harlan County. Back in the day, Harlan County at that time was around 75,000, making it the third largest. Yeah. Yeah. The Harlan County population is, you know, 29,000. No, no, no. Twenty. It's declining. It's declined since, since 2010. It's 26,000 now and continuing to decline. Yeah, and, and like I said, during the Great Migration between the 50s and 70s, that area, you know how I said it was 12% black, that area lost 70% of its black population because they were because the coal mines were closing and the first people that were getting fired were the black coal miners. And so they were moving on to the north for better opportunities. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so that's something that I know this book dives into. Obviously, we haven't read the book. It hasn't been released yet, but that's something that we want to talk to Dr. Turner about and uh, pick his brain. Exclusive book facts with Will and Neil from (laughs) Dr. Turner. I can't wait, man. No, I'm excited to find out uh, how he grew up and just just to hear, hear it all from the horse's mouth. Let's get him on here. All right, let's go. the show today dr william turner he is a a luminary and renowned scholar of appalachian studies specifically black life in appalachia he's he's currently retired after serving as a research scientist and leader at prairie view a and m university but he has also been the dean of arts and science and interim president at kentucky state university the Vice President for Multicultural Affairs at UK and Distinguished Professor of Appalachian Studies and Regional Ambassador at Berea College, among other stops. He um, has his undergrad from the University of Kentucky and master's and PhD in sociology from Notre Dame. He has a list of accomplishments that I'm not going to read or else we'd be here all day, Um, but we are definitely honored and want to welcome Dr. Turner. Do you mind if we call you Bill? No, sir. That's fine with me. All right. We're honored to have, have you on the show. and We just want to welcome. Thank you, sir. I'm so happy to be here. One of the things I did want to ask you, you know, Appalachia's big on tradition, just like our family's big on tradition. One of, one of the traditions that we have is have appetizers at the holidays. <laughs> we wanted to ask you if you had a favorite appetizer or holiday dish. Favorite appetizer? Let me see. You know, maybe so. Uh, and, and this may sound really corny, but still one of my favorite foods. And uh, this is going to really wipe out anybody's image of me as a highly educated man. It's uh, one of my father's favorite foods. And uh, as I was explaining to my grandsons, as I bought some the other day, I asked them, what does this spell? V-I-E-N-N-A. So I had this can of sausage, as you boys know. You know, for me, man, uh, two boiled eggs and some vainas is just fine with me for uh, an 
appetizer at Thanksgiving with Madame Mika. Yeah, that's a great answer. My understanding is that you were, uh, I got on this as a result of a conversation you had with Chad Berry. Correct. Uh, at Berea College. Yes. So, you know, that that's kind of magical to me. Berea meant so much, uh, even in terms of the, uh, how I got started down this trail. The former president, John Stevenson, who was the president of Berea from 1984 to 1994 when he passed on. Uh, John was my undergraduate advisor at Kentucky in the 60s. And I remember one time he said to me, Bill, uh, as he was sitting to graduate school, why don't you dedicate your life as a social study of Black people in Appalachia? And at the time, 1960s, I couldn't imagine anything that I would rather not do than study anything about Appalachia. Uh, I just got through reading Harry Caudill's Night Comes to the Cumberlands. And I, of course, had been kind of saturated all my life with all these negative stereotypes about Appalachia. I grew up in Harlan County in Lynch. My daddy was a coal miner there for 50 years. Uh, my mother was born in Harlan County in Benham in 1924. So I was very steeped in the place. Even to this very moment, uh, something is on my desk here about J.D. Vance. So, you know, almost every 20 years or so, somebody comes up with a new definition about life in the mountains. So when John missed me in the mid-60s, I, I just kind of said, maybe so, and I left. But I'm so glad at some point I woke up and dedicated myself to this. I basically became a one-trick pony. Yeah, we, we, we won't get into J.D. Vance, but we will, right. we, will, we will definitely get into your book. We wanted to talk about uh, you got a new book coming out in October. It's called The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachia, not to be mistaken by the Harlem Renaissance, but your book is The Harlan Renaissance. And I, I imagine it's part memoir, part sociological lessons, partially why we started this po podcast was to dispel some of the misconceptions of Appalachia. And I imagine that's what this book kind of does. Yeah, maybe even uh, in uh, the... Uh... The way I wrestled with what, what, what would I have named this, I never thought about it until I finished it. And it took me a very long time to do it. But anybody that is vaguely familiar with African-American life and history in America, if you say Harlem, New York City, since the 1920s, that part of Manhattan, upper Manhattan called Harlem, was the epicenter of black life and culture in the United States. I mean, it had one of the highest concentration of black people. When you thought of the Harlem Globetrotters, for example, everybody knows them. That's New York City. And it occurred to me from just living it and knowing it, uh, some of the stereotypes. So what I tried to do with my book is say, did you happen to know Harlem was kind of like the blackest town for mountains around? So there was a very high concentration of Black people uh, in Harlan County uh, at a point in the 20s and 30s and 40s, the percentage of Black population in Harlan County was higher than it was in Fayette County and in Jefferson County, which is Louisville. I tell people all the time, in terms of my eyeballs and what I saw when I walked around in Lynch, as opposed to to when I was 20 years old, I went to college in Lexington. I called my mother and I said, Mama, I have never seen this many white people in my life. That was my first response when I went to UK. Because I grew up in Harlan County. I grew up in Lynch. And it, when I was born and raised in Lynch, I was born in 1946. At that time, there were 38 nationalities in Lynch. You could meet people named Vicini. You could meet people named Hoiska. You could meet people named Harry Caudle. Uh, you could meet people who were from e all over Eastern Europe. Uh, there was a family across the street from my grandmother in Lynch, and their name was Camacho. So there were people of Mexican descent. Uh, I can remember uh, we shopped at a store called Doll Hairs, which was a family from Syria. So that I lived in a very cosmopolitan place in the 1950s with people from all over the world. And it was just when I got to Lexington that things were like black and white. But in Lynch, you heard accents from Poland. You heard accents from Yugoslavia. You talked to a man named Mr. Stagnolia, uh, whose family had come there from Sicily. 
And of course, that was Miss Willie May, uh, whose family came there from Birmingham. Mm -hmm. So the black folk came basically out of the South in Alabama because United States Steel that founded and built uh, our town uh, in Lynch, Kentucky, U.S. Steel already had its, its hands deep into coal mining in and around Birmingham. Birmingham was known as the Steel City. So black people worked the mines of Alabama and then they came to Harlan County. And by the way, for folks who are always asking me about the name of my town, Lynch, every time I tell somebody I'm from Lynch, they kind of just want to ask me, whoa, <laughs> you black man raised in a place called Lynch, what was that like? Uh, you know, I'm 75 years old, so I'm at a point where I don't care what I say. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was the same way. But Lynch was the name of the man who was the president of United States Steel, and he lived in Pittsburgh. And it was not uncommon for all of these people who owned coal companies, some of those fly-by-night ones in eastern Kentucky, they named the places after themselves. They named the towns after their children, whatever, they, whatever their fancy was. I know in your book, you also describe kind of how the, the Black family built and maintained kind of this sustainable community structure where people uh, thrived, really, despite the odds and some of those odds, racism and discrimination. But can you talk about that a little bit? Maybe why uh, you were so successful in this thriving, uh, sustainable community? And, you know, what was the secret? No problem. I'd love to talk about that because that also, that journey, that experience, which just it wasn't myself, but just hundreds of people I knew I grew up around. And, and when I say Harlan, I would like for it to stand for Jeeps and Hazard and Wheelwright, and Pineville, and Barbersville, and Middlesboro, uh, that whole stretch down the Jellicoe Mountain uh, near Corbin. So it wasn't just Lynch. And I could also go across the mountain to where my great-grandmother was born in the 1850s. And she was born in a place called Pennington Gap, which is in Lee County, Virginia, as we call it, far southwest Virginia. My daddy grew up in Coburn, Virginia. Uh, which is near Appalachia, the only town in the mountains named after this whole chain. I used to go to Appalachia every month in my life when my father would go over from Lynch to Coburn to see his mom. So part of what I hope to have done in my book is to disabuse people of this notion when I tell them where I'm from and this kind of wrinkle comes across their brow and they want to say, oh, gee, you must have grown up so poor. Did you have any teeth? Did you have shoes? What'd you old guys eat? And uh, uh, did everybody talk like that right there? And uh, <laughs> was they all believed in paints and ghosts and witches? and You know, all of this crap. I, I tell people all the time, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I did not grow up in abject poverty. There was 10 of us. Our daddy went to the third grade. Our mother went to the 10th grade. He married her when she was 15 in 1938, which was not uncommon for people to get married. I'm sure y'all grandma might've got married when she was 15, who knows? But you know, it was not uncommon in the thirties for women to get married at 15 girls uh, for that matter. So uh, for whatever life was worked throughout the United States, rather, throughout the United States, my father was, was fortunate. He had a steady job for the largest, most highly capitalized company in the United States of America in the 1920s was U.S. Steel. In the 1920s, the U U.S. Steel and Andrew Carnegie and uh, the Rockefellers, uh, what they came to call the coal barons, uh, U.S. Steel built a town that still exists. The house I was born in still sits there 100 years later. We did not go to bed hungry. We were not in some sort of perpetual crisis as a family. Dad worked. We went to Norris Lake and Cherokee Lake in Tennessee every weekend when it was spring. I think my father, I don't think, I know my father's income, comparatively speaking, in 1940, 1950, up till he retired in the uh, early 70s. He was there 46 years. His income was equivalent to what working men made in the factories of Indiana, and when people moved to GE up there near Cincinnati, and when people left and went up to Ypsilanti, or what they call it, Ypsilanti, uh, different places up north, as we say, to Detroit, that hillbilly highway. 
my father didn't have to travel it. So he was able to raise a steady situation in our family. And my best thought about it a few years ago when one of our family members died and we all came home for her funeral, I sat there and I looked at the generation behind me, my own children, who are respectively 50 and 46 and 40. They all went to college. They have graduate degrees. I have a nephew who Stanford and got an undergraduate degree. He got an MBA from Columbia and he works for Facebook. And uh, uh, so that two generations removed from a third grade fellow from Coburn, Virginia. And I know the same applies to many, many families where we uh, grew up in Harlan County. Uh, we went to a place, those of us in my age group, uh, up until about 1965, our school was called the Lynch Colored School. Uh, those words are etched in the concrete up on the building, Lynch Colored School. That is where I studied from 1952 until 1963. It is also where my mother went to the first grade. The same teacher that taught me in the first grade taught my mom. And so there was a, there was a steadiness, as they say, life was good in the cold camps until it wasn't. And then at some point, as you guys know, by the mid 50s, when I was five or 10 years old, at least, coal began to be mined by machines and not people. Uh, people can say what they want to about Obama ruining coal, but they just don't know what they're talking about. Coal began to, began to lose its primacy as an element in the energy industry sector in this country. Uh, actually, coal began to lose its place in the 1950s, 1960s, particularly with the autom automation. And so now, as you know, uh, last year was one of the years for the lowest production of coal. But uh, I must just kind of button this up by saying during that period, those schools where we attended, the Lincoln School in Middlesbrough, the Rosenwald School in Harlan, the, the Black School in London, and all those places, when they were segregated, they certainly weren't equal to the uh, resources in the white schools, but some kids came out of those schools that didn't do too bad. I've heard, I guess, U.S. Steel and some of the companies kind of brought in the teachers for those schools, and they were, you know, the best teachers that money could buy. Really. That's what, they are. that was the word, the best teachers that money can buy. Of course, I had them all, everything from uh, the Greek classics to Latin, uh, any of the sciences and foreign languages, uh, they had them at the Lynch Colored School in 1960. And so that, for example, I can remember so well uh, when I quite tentatively and with much trepidation uh, stepped on the campus of the University of Kentucky when I was 20 years old. And I was like, oh, my God, here I am around all these rich, smart people from Jefferson County. And I was actually frightened. And I sat around in my classes. I said to myself, they don't have any more sense than I have. <laughs> they haven't been any further up the mountain than I have. They, they ain't got nothing on me. And so I lost my, uh, my sense of trepidation almost as quickly as it came upon me because I, I had bought into the stereotypes that those of us from Eastern Kentucky weren't as smart as people from Fayette County. Well, then I discovered they hadn't even been out of Lexington. So they knew absolutely no more than I did. And they certainly, our, our teachers... Uh, our athletic teams, uh, well, you know, I don't have to convince you guys of that. Y'all grew up in Kentucky, and I'm, I see Neil shaking his head, so uh, <laughs> my sense is that you agree that the same applies for Blacks and whites coming out of the mountains, although, uh, you know, we still have our challenges in that part of the world. Uh, I wouldn't give anything. I wouldn't trade a moment, because I can't, for number one, for the upbringing I had, uh, because it was uh, a very steady environment. Uh, our father had a job for 50 years. We had this very close-knit community where, uh, as they say, everybody knew everybody and everybody knew everybody's business. Uh, everybody knew who it was parked up on the road on the mountain on a Sunday night, and uh, they could put it in the paper if they want to. Everybody knew who everybody's daddy was. Everybody knew who his mom was. And everybody uh, would... Uh, uh, frame you around them in such a way that if you literally got out of hand at school, while there was no Snapchat and no Facebook and no instant messages, it seemed like somehow 
even with our telephones, the word would get to your mama about five minutes after you did something wrong. Because that was how close everybody was. Everybody, you know, as dad used to just say to us to a point that he didn't have to say it anymore, boy, I ain't got no money. All I have is a good name. You take care of it. It's so encouraging for me to hear to hear you talk about all those places, Norris Lake and Cherokee, and you're basically describing the way that Will and I grew up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, different generation, but we grew up, you yeah. know, I'm the youngest of four of us, so not quite as many children, but basically the same childhood, yeah. the same general mm-hmm. area. So, yeah. you know, I'm still the guy who lives in a small town still, who everybody knows everybody's business and you know, <laughs> everybody knows who everybody's mama and daddy is. So what I got to ask, and, um, you know, I haven't looked into it a lot yet, but what led to you leaving Appalachia? And, and why do you think that that happened in your life? Well, uh, it was it was never a choice that I wouldn't leave. I think that, that at the time that my grandparents migrated into Harlan County, my grandparents on mama's side came from Georgia. Uh, on dad's side, of course, I'm just old mountain in Southwest Virginia. But in those uncertain terms, one of the most oft-repeated phrases I would hear at the pool room, which is where all the guys hung out, for example, and then there was a, a gathering place up the street from my house uh, under a big maple tree where a lot of old black men would gather uh, to play dominoes and play checkers and uh, drink hula pole beer and listen to the Cincinnati Red Wings in 1961. <laughs> but when you listen to those guys, what you heard most often was, Bill, get yourself some education, boy, so you don't have to go into a two-foot hole of coal. And so... It's like my, uh, we always knew our sisters could not go into the mine. My sisters are all older than me. And by the time we grew up, it was clear that the mechanization of mining, the joy loaders, the continuous miners, the strip mining, the uh, uh, what do you call long wall mining machines. I remember my daddy was hired, promoted after we sued the coal mine. Uh, they uh, promoted dad to run a continuous miner and he got to making a hundred dollars a day. And I remember he said to me one time, you know something, Billy? This is great for us, but this job, this machine just put 300 boys out of work. That's what he looked at. He said, I'm doing, I, I get as much gold in an eight-hour shift as 300 boys used to. Cause see, he went in when he was 14 years old in 1917. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I always knew uh, because while we were fishing in that John boat down at Lone Mountain Boat Dock, that's why I was still down there somewhere, I bet you. When we used to go to Betty Lou Slough somewhere down near uh, Knoxville, I believe it was, or Tazewell. And Dad would tell me when I was 12 years old, you're not going to do this kind of work. You're not going to do it. Now, my brother became a coal miner. My oldest brother was a coal miner for 25 years. But 90%, 95% of us did not. I mean, I could pick up the phone right now and call some guys I know the Massey boys in Lynch, uh, Reverend uh, Hampton, Rutland Melton, the guys I know in Lynch I grew up with. I'm 10 years old than they are, but they're retired now, and they spent 25 and 30 years in the coal mine. But their children did not go into the coal mine, so it was never that fourth generation. They never did it. And that was because when I was 10 and 12 years old, how, how frequently did I see, sometimes in the dead of night, or, or certainly the next morning, you wake up and say, Hey, mama, I see we're willing, willing to move. Where'd they go to? They owed the company store. They packed the truck up late at night, and all of a sudden, they were in Cleveland, Ohio. They were in Columbus, Ohio. They were in Dayton. They were in Middletown, up there where J.D. Vance was from. They were in Milwaukee. They were in Chicago. They were in Indianapolis. And my calling places where many whites left East Kentucky and went to the same places, you see. Uh, so, so I always knew I would never work in a coal mine because dad was dead set against it. The only thing he wasn't dead set against when I got, got a scholarship to go to college when I was 18, most of the black kids where I grew up before me, they went to Kentucky State University, uh, a college which I eventually became the president of. But I remember when I got a scholarship at 18 to go to college, and my dad says to me, well, Billy, they just open up, buddy, at community college right out here in Cumberland. You can go to Cumberland out here. We can go fishing for another two years. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way my father talked. <laughs> so I say to Lynch till I was 20. 
you know, and then and the, my older siblings, uh, if they graduated, usually on a, on a Friday, they were gone to New Jersey by Sunday. But there I was. Uh, uh, Dad didn't turn over my plate when I turned 18. I stayed there at the house with my younger brothers, you know, un until I was 20. And I went to the community college in Cumberland. And, and so that journey, uh, as you well know, and I'm sure it applies in Laurel County, in Harlan County, in Breathitt County, in Jackson County, it's still just right, just uh, today, finish this book, you guys got to get it. It's called Twilight in Hazard by a guy named Alan Mamon. That may not be the way you pronounce it, but that would be the way you pronounce it in French. M-A-I-M-O-N. It's probably pronounced Mammon. He married a girl from Harlem, by the way. But one of the things he shows in Twilight in Hazard is the fact that Eastern Kentucky continues to be a net exporter of its young people. They, they, they leave Whitesburg, no matter how hard Herbie and the guys at Apple Shop are trying, there's still an out-migration of young people. And uh, there are no coal jobs anymore. Uh, they can go to Lexington and work for Toyota in Georgetown. And, and then they can go home every Saturday night if they want to, back down to Bell County and <laughs> be back at work on Monday morning. So with the opening up of the highways, uh, one can almost, uh, I mean, I live in Houston, Texas, man. So if I got ready to leave here to go to the airport, I better prepare as though I'm driving from Harlan to Lexington because I live 56 miles from the airport. Now that's inside the city. <laughs> uh, so now, a guy can leave Lexington, I think, and be in London in exactly an hour and 15 minutes and exit 29 and, and, and be right there on that lake where he really wants to be on the weekend anyway. And, and so I think the uh, efficiency of mass transportation has at least made it where people could get from Hazard to Cincinnati much quicker than they did when I was a kid. What, one of the uh, things you, you were talking about education and, and, uh, I know a term that we've always heard, getting above your raisins. It's something that, you know, people always back home always said, never get above your raisins. But it seems like since you've left, you have a much more appreciation for where you come from, which I think Neil and I have talked about that before, even to the point that you have these social clubs. Or oh, yeah. I, I guess it's the East Kentucky maybe social club. Is right, that, right. important to you to bring people together that, that grew up there, that are from there? Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, the Eastern Kentucky Social Club has been around for 53 years, I think, an annual reunion uh, of people from uh, maybe a 50 to 75 mile radius from Lynch, drawn together by the historical network, where if you grew up in Harlan County in the 50s, like I did, well, that meant that two or three times a year, our old First Baptist Church would interface with Goo Temple A.M.E. Zion Church or some church in London or some church in Middlesbrough or Mount Moriah down in Middlesbrough and churches in Jenkins and Hazard. So through the churches and the athletic relationships. And then, you know, we have these associations and clubs like my father was a belonged to a Masonic Lodge. Our mother was in the women's auxiliary. Uh, and so by the time uh, I got to be 25 and all those brothers and sisters had left home in the generation before me and, and settled down in nice jobs in uh, Flint, Michigan, <laughs> and in Ypsilanti, and in Lent, not Lansing, but Detroit and Southfield and places like that and Youngstown and Milwaukee and all of that. And I understand some of them were hanging out one night in Cleveland and they invited some of their friends from uh, Chicago Say, hey, man, why don't everybody come over to Cleveland for the weekend, Labor Day weekend, we can all get together. Because apparently they, uh, this this fella owned a bar. One of our homeboys had, had owned a bar. And next thing you know, 200 people showed up, and all of them was from Harlan County. <laughs> you know, And they had come from Chicago and Cincinnati because they wanted to see their people who lived in Cleveland that they had gone to high school with. I'm sure people do, still do the same thing. There used to be a great reunion out like that out of uh, Wheelwright, where people would uh, came into Lexington. This was a white group out of Wheelwright. I don't think I have it anymore. I know somebody wrote a book about it called Camelot in Wheelwright. This Eastern Kentucky Social Club group, which I used to write a weekly newspaper for, they have Facebook pages on it right now. It's, it's a uniquely wonderful 
a, a confederation, and uh, it was only interrupted last year for the first time in 50 years by COVID. Uh, and because of COVID, it was not held last year. It was supposed to be in Chicago, uh, and they're not going to hold it again this year uh, uh, for the reason that COVID seems going to come back or something. Uh, but it is slated to be held in Lexington next year. And at its height, I, I have seen it uh, uh, have 3,000 people at a sit-down dinner on a Sunday night, Labor Day, uh, in New York City. And it's all of these people, and all of them have some kind of roots back to Lynch and Benham and Cumberland and Hazard and Jenkins and Wheelwright. Those city folks look at all of us and my God, where all y'all come from? And they couldn't believe that these people still have these first name relationships with each other, uh, so much so that I wouldn't be surprised if both you Warren brothers don't have a nickname or something. Because everybody around us, you know, they'll be calling each other Junebug and Chapo and Bilbo and Fluffo and Jimbo and uh, Big Eye and Frog Eye and uh, Shotgun and, and Slapjack and all kinds of nicknames. And you would never know What's his real name? Because nobody ever knew his real name. <laughs> but everybody knew and everybody knows when you see Fluffo. And uh, 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 Fluffo, if I could, if somebody offered me a million dollars right now, what is Fluffo's real name? I have no clue. <laughs> uh, in fact, I have a chapter in my book uh, on, on called What is a Name? Interesting story, at least for me, for example, is when they integrated to school, and we left the Lynch Colored School in 1963, the week of the March on Washington, not insignificant. And we went up to, we marched up to what everybody called the white school. And I'll never forget the first day we sat down and this white teacher, I'm, no, I'm sure she didn't choose to be white, so I'm not using like some kind of noun. She started reading these names off. You know, it's like, a, I don't know, let me grab a book here and see if I can read some names off. Uh, she read off names like Gurthy, Gundry, Grimes, Bressup, Greenwood, Greenup, uh, Gorman, Gore, Gooch, Gladwell, Gil, Giovanni, and all the black people just looking at it like, what the hell is she talking about? <laughs> Who is that? Because everybody called me Bilbo, but nobody called me William Turner. And at the black school, the teacher would walk in and it was so orderly, it was so patterned. She would just look around the room because she knew everybody. She didn't have to call your name. Just consider the subtlety in the school because our teachers lived across the street from us. They knew us. They knew our whole family. <laughs> but uh, the good thing of coming from a family like that is that, uh, you know, our dad was uh, probably like y'all daddy. I don't ever remember daddy taking a car to a mechanic unless it was something really serious. Uh, no plumber ever came to our house, no wallpaper, no painter, uh, no bricklayer, no nothing like that, because dad just took the old company house and redid it himself. Part of why I'm so happy I was able to write about that stuff is that there may be some souls somewhere who didn't think that there were skilled Black men in the mountains of the South who could do anything. They were quite independent. They were the quintessence of... of of American values about patriotism. Don't give me no patriotism stuff. Don't bring your flag to me. My uncle Robert, my uncle Hobart, after whom I named, uh, died in 1943, a couple years before I was born, as a Buffalo soldier in Italy. And so religion, oh, you know, don't, don't bring your family values to me and, and use this as some kind of political barrier that I've been hearing for the last 10 years of my life because I grew up around people who lived all of those Appalachian values, patriotism, loyalty, family, independence, friendliness. And the greatest thing to have was don't take yourself too damn seriously. Yeah. You know, a sense of humor, you know, because I mean, when you talked a minute ago there, Neil, about uh, getting above your raising, and you guys know uh, in most places in the mountains of the South, if you got above your raising, uh, somebody would tell you real quick. Right. So, 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 you know, it's like, who do you think you are? Or, or, <laughs> or when somebody goes to Cincinnati for two or three months and comes back talking with a different accent, you know, grandma say, well, bless her heart. Ain't that good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the, you know, what so, are the so you, 
Uh, and let me tell you this story. Now, I'll let uh, when I got my, uh, I was 25, I think, when I was blessed uh, 50 years ago. Uh, I came home from South Bend, Indiana. I had a PhD in my hand from the University of Notre Dame. And I went to my church that I grew up in, and the preacher made me stand up, Reverend J.W. West. He made me stand up, and he said, now, I guess y'all know Billy got a, Billy's a doctor now. And I'm standing there like, oh, my God. And, uh, and he says, so from now on, everybody in this church got to call him Dr. Turner. And, you know, everybody's looking at me. I'm standing next to my father. They were all proud. So after church, you know, people kind of glad-handing me. And this lady says to me, Bill, I'm so glad you're a doctor. Now, I'll call you doctor because I want you to take a look at my arm. <laughs> and I said, oh, God. And I said, uh, Miss Mirage, she said, these bastards around here have been working on my arm for 40 years. It ain't right yet. I think I got arthritis or something. And I said, I said, Miss Mariah, I'm not that kind of doctor. And she got very quiet. It was paused like this. And she said, well, what kind of doctor are you? And I said, I, I have a PhD and I studied anthropology and sociology. And she, she, she was, had that snuffer in her jaw. She spit right there in the church yard, like almost spit on my foot. And she said, oh, hell. Anybody knows that kind of stuff. I thought you was a real doctor. <laughs> so from that point on, even to this day, when, when uh, Will said at the uh, start here, do you mind being called Bill? I grew up around people who, because, you know, they, they just uh, wouldn't let you go so far, even if you were a real doctor, because they know your grandma. They know, they knew you, and as they say, you didn't have a something to something in and something window to throw it out of. <laughs> I think I saw an excerpt from your book. Obviously we haven't read it yet because we haven't got it and be able, we can't get our hands on it yet. But um, I think I saw an excerpt that said change is not always progress oh, yeah. you wrote in the book. And that, that kind of is in regards to integration of the schools, but also maybe the mechanization of coal. Do you think when you mentioned the tradition, the family, the community, everything that you had in this black community, uh, the fact that the black percentages have declined in the region. Do you think that we have kind of gotten away from a lot of that thing, a lot of those things? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I have no doubt about it. In fact, uh, I, I'm working on a little piece for an interview I'm going to do here tomorrow, I think. And it's really called Why I Wrote the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, I, I started off with uh, this scene of a... Uh, a fellow laying on a couch at his shrinks, at his psychs, at his psychiatrist's office. And the psychiatrist had apparently said, Will, I'm sorry, you keep bringing up your childhood. And he said, I know I do. I love my childhood. That's where I grew up. And so maybe I, uh, in some of my writings, what I've tried to do was remember what I think I describe as a really magnificent place uh, that for me, I know what people might think about Harlan County in the 40s and the 50s, but I remember that little old white church very well. I remember what that meant to me. I want my grandchildren to read about how when I would hear these preachers and, uh, you know, when you're leaving the church and one lady says to the other, Lord, that was a good sermon. What did he say? And one said to the other, I don't know what he said, but it sure sounded good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Such as it is for me, it's where I learned oratory. You know, preachers who may have been a little bit on uh, lacking when it came to a, a, a divinity degree from Emory University, but they knew the Bible and they could speak it just, uh, God, you didn't know when they were talking in tongues or talking in some great language, but that I can remember that so well. I used to love the sound of that uh, in that church. I used to love to hear people singing like water rushing down the creek. Uh, and I don't mind that uh, they made us stay in church from uh, uh, 11 o'clock to 2.30. Uh, and then you double back for something that night. That is where the civil rights movement came out of. It came out of the churches. So as a teenager, uh, I welcomed all of that. And I don't want to sound too corny here. I also, my mother played piano in the same church. 
from the time she was 13 until she died at 77. And I swear she used to play the piano and you would actually see the presence of God right there in the living room. She practices it. All these people would come to the house hear mama play. Similarly, that, that got to be very sacred. And I, I, if your question says, and I do believe uh, some of that is gone. I can go to a church service here that I went to recently here in Houston, one of these mega churches. Church has 22,000 people in an arena where the Hornets, not the Hornets, whatever the basketball team around here is named, Houston Rockets. Rockets. Uh, you know, Joel Osteen Joel. type churches. But man, you go to these big mega churches, got like you got 200 deacons in the church. You know, I'm going, is this church or is this some kind of entertainment venue? You know, <laughs> so I would prefer that place where it's 40 or 50 people that you knew. And if you went to sleep, your mom would slap you upside the head and everybody, everything like that. And so uh, I, I enjoyed those simple ceremonies we used to have uh, uh, where people would do things as simple as how far could you spit a watermelon seed? Now that was really heavy, super stuff, man, to breathe two leg races, stuff my grandchildren can't imagine when we didn't have a cell phone. I took my two grandsons, they're 13 and 14. I took them fishing with me the other day. And I'm getting ready to get back in the truck with these boys. And they both were sitting there looking at a cell phone. And they had these things on their ears. And I said, man, I thought I told y'all not to bring those things. Because I wanted to talk to them about, you know, speaking in tongues and my daddy's corny sense of humor. And those occasions that we used to have as a family when we'd have a family reunion. Well, now I have a brother who lives in New Orleans, a brother lives in Cincinnati, a brother lives in Indianapolis, a sister lives in Richmond, Virginia, a sister lives in Southfield, Michigan, a brother-like kid, uh, he grew up with us, he lives in Atlanta, and the other one lives in Detroit. That's seven of us in seven different places. We have a family reunion mainly when somebody dies. Heck, I have it already arranged to where when I croak, as dad would say, when I kick the bucket, uh, the idea is to gather at home across the street from our old church and pour some ashes in Looney Creek. That's where I used to fish when I was a kid. It's called I mean, Looney Creek runs right through the middle of the lens. Now, why that? Because everybody goes home for what we call Flower Day. I think they might still call it Memorial Day in some places. But lots and lots of people in my network uh, that I grew up with in Lynch and in Pineville and London, they come, they come from Cincinnati and all these places for Memorial Day. So that's why I keep telling my family, I hope, you know, when I leave this earth, you know, uh, it'll be, you'll have to wait till the next Memorial Day. So it'd be neat if I leave the earth in the middle of May, and then in two weeks, everybody be home, you don't have to, you'll have to telegraph it too much. Uh, uh, and that, that's what I would like to happen to my ashes because that's what has drifted away uh, those encounters with blackberry picking and stuff. Uh, I had my grandkids, we took them up to Harlan County a couple of years ago. I, I made sure that one of my buddies bought two ATVs and we took them up on top of the mountain where I used to have to walk up there. Well, now they go up there in these nice little buggies and stuff, you know. And, and my grandkids, uh, we shot up 200 rounds of nine millimeter bullets because they could never get to shoot a gun outside in Houston. You have to take them to inside a building to shoot a gun here, you know, in a nice little expensive place to practice. Well, there we were standing in the backyard where I grew up in Lynch and our, on our back porch, shooting up against the mountain because the mountain is right behind the house. You're not, you know, and the boys going, we're going to shoot right here, Pop Pop? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, because uh, we used to shoot in that same spot with our daddy. So, I guess what I'm saying here is that uh, taking them back there for me, writing that book sometime was really a matter of seeking the divine because there were certain elements of growing up in Appalachia that are absolutely divine. And if you don't grow up there, you wouldn't understand that. And I don't even try to explain to people that didn't grow up there to say, I'm telling you, it's, it was cosmic, man. Uh, I don't care what you say about Berea or Lexington or Louisville. You know, there's, there's something about the Daniel Boone National Forest that you've got to experience. you got to go to Cave Run Lake yourself, and you got to go through that uh, Red River Gorge, you know, when you're 16, and you got to go to a place called Clamp, Camp Blanton, which is still an old-growth forest in Harlan County. And, of course, 
you know, black people became such an urbanized people around the time that my grandparents were moving into East Kentucky to the coal mine. Uh, the vast majority of blacks are moving to Baltimore, to Washington, to Philadelphia, to Boston, to Cleveland, to these big cities. Uh, my grandparents moved from a little town in Alabama, uh, Georgia, to a little town in Kentucky. So, you know, for at least 100 years, our family has been rural. And then in my generation, we all moved away. We all live in cities. But we, we, we try to bring our, our children back to, to uh, you know, not only visit the, the space where grandpa is buried, but fortunately, we have a, a lot of photographs, a lot of family memories, memories, because as you know, there was a spot at the top of Black Mountain in Harlan County going into Virginia, where my daddy used to take me and daddy could say, that's Tennessee over there. And uh, we'd be at the top of Black Mountain looking out toward the, you know, it could have, it might not have been Tennessee. Dad had a way of telling you stuff that you believed. Uh, well, now when you stand at that vista, it's scarred and marred by mountaintop removal on the Virginia side. And so when you can say to your kids, it didn't look like that 25 years ago. You've been up there. If you've crossed over from Lynch, you know, into Appalachia or any place near Hazard where you can see yeah. uh, the mountains have been, been decimated. So we've, we've been able to tell our kids about these before and after things because one of my kids is 50 years old now. Yeah. And she used to go there with me when she was five. And I, so I she can appreciate what's going on. I, I don't want to speak for Neil, but I, I'm sure he feels the same. Just to hear you talk, it makes my, kind of makes my heart swell with pride. Like, uh, you know, it's exactly the way kind of we grew up and every, like Neil said, every place that you're talking about, we, we just have fond memories of. Something else that we ask yeah. everybody, it's just uh, where, and I think we might know the answer, but where do, you know, you don't live in Appalachia anymore, but where do you call home? And, and, you know, I think you already spoke about the uniqueness of Appalachia, but is that where you call home? I live in Texalachia. Texalachia. But <laughs> <laughs> well, one reason I say that, when I came to Prairie, when I came here, I, I was at a college, a college of agriculture. And the job I had there, we were analyzing data, looking at what you call the marginalized populations of Texas. Marginalized. <laughs> As you know, Texas, I thought Kentucky had a lot of counts. I think Kentucky has 120 counts. Texas has 274 counts, okay? And Texas has 30 million people, of which about 7.4 million live below the poverty level. The vast majority of those are brown people on the Rio Grande, Rio Grande Valley. So, you know, that's another thing I'm saying. Is people can say what they want to about the abject poverty of this Appalachian stereotype. I could take you to some neighborhoods in metropolitan Houston. You think you're in the third world somewhere. And don't go down on the border where some of our uh, brothers and sisters whose names are Jose and Lupita, uh, and they, they live in very abject poverty. So uh, uh, you can talk about all you want to about the opioid and oxycodone problems in the mountains of the South. But that's why I say we all must be Appalachians because the same privations go on here as go on everywhere. And correspondingly, you can go to London, Kentucky, and there are people who got homes just as nice and farms just as nice as some of the farms and the homes you see here. And you can go to Kentucky Lake, that is it Kentucky Lake or Cumberland, Lake Cumberland down here. And it's just as nice as Lake Conroe, which is 40 miles north of me. And Lake Conroe has some $2 million and $5 million houses around it, but that's another story. Yeah. My point is that Say what you want to about Appalachia, but Texas has some Appalachians too. Uh, where do I call home? Well, as they say, home is where the heart is. And my heart is still on Second Street uh, in Harlan County. And when I am in any setting, a couple weeks ago, I was up in Frankfurt for a meeting and somebody said, where are you from? And I said, Lynch. And I said, Lynch, Kentucky? Oh my God. But I didn't know they meant if you're from there right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, oh, I thought you were, where was I really from? You know, because when you say you're in Houston, they go, oh, wow, like, that's really neat. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I have, I've been much, pretty much itinerant, almost nomadic-like, even though I've been away from that space where I was born and raised since I was 20. I left home when I was 20, and that's been 55 years. But there's never been a year in which a month has passed that I didn't go back to Kentucky. I was just in Kentucky a couple weeks ago. So good luck, Willing and the creek don't rise. 
Uh, I'll be in Kentucky 10 times before Christmas. You got a favorite fishing spot? Oh, what, here in Texas? Anywhere in the world. Anywhere. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I'll meet you there anytime you want to. Uh, my brother, Carl, who is 63, she's about 10 years younger than me, a little bit more than 10. Carl used to be the executive director of the Louisiana Seafood Marketing Board. And that put him in touch with every fishing guide from Panama City to Matagorda Bay in Texas. He knows all of my name, my first name, 30, 40 years. So twice a year, I go fishing in Louisiana. The best fishing, I don't care what anybody say, in this deep south is in Louisiana. It's a paradise for sportsmen. Uh, most recently, uh, we fished at a place in Venice. Venice, Louisiana, about an hour and a half from New Orleans. It's called the fishing capital of the world. That's where the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. It's just filled with aquatic life. We went there back in March with my grandsons. We went. We go out with a guide. And, you know, these guys can catch, rain, catch fish in the rain, man. They, they know what these fish are. So that's where I like fishing in Louisiana. Just the other day, I took my grandsons to fish uh, on what is called the Sabine River, uh, which makes up Toledo Bend Lake. Uh, between it's on the Texas Louisiana border. You've heard of Toledo Bend if you want to Jimmy Houston's fishing fans, aren't you? Yeah, so bass and but we we fished the Sabine Basin where it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico near Port Arthur, Texas. That's about an hour and a half east of here. And you can catch redfish, catch what they call the Texas triple play. That's a redfish, a flounder, and a speckled trout. Come on down, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Now, can I ask you one final question and then we'll let sure, you go? Sure, sure. Uh, I think in your book, you wrote Appalachia's fortunes are America's riches and the other way around. Appalachia's mm -hmm. finally mainstreamed. Uh, can you say what you meant by that? Yeah, by that, uh, I mean something akin to what I said a moment ago about there's so much good in the bad places and there's so much bad in the so-called good places. So what behooves the people in the good places to talk about the people they think are in the bad places? So, so that when I say Appalachia is mainstream, the main idea there is that just as much as this connection we're having here digitally brings us much closer together, uh, so it is with other parts of, 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 of our society. And that is the people in, in, in the part of Appalachia where we grew up in Eastern Kentucky, the mountain isn't so high anymore. People can see what we're doing and we can see what they're doing. Except for some of us in those mountains, we have the same access to the internet, to the digital spaces, and we can uh, look and see things and learn things sitting right in our houses in Eastern Kentucky that we could not do just as recently as a generation ago. So, so that's what I mean in terms of Appalachia is mainstream. Uh, and, uh, one other thing I'd like to mention, for example, when, you, when I go back to growing up in Lynch, Kentucky, that was a corporate fiefdom, I called it, owned by United States Steel, lock, stock, and barrel. And it was also, an, early on, it was a gated community. You couldn't come into those coal camps unless you had business there. A while ago, I mentioned about one of our nephews who's out there in Mountain View, California, in the Silicon Valley. And in a way, uh, the way those people are living in those high-class so-called communities that all are structured around Google or some internet company. Well, we just happen to have lived that kind of uh, life a hundred years ago in some of the coal camps because they imported everything you needed from a safety pin to a car. You could buy it at the United States Steel Big Store in Lynch. And uh, so in some way, uh, people are going back to the future. Uh, what, what we're seeing as uh, uh, I'm sure y'all daddy would say, there's nothing really new under the sun. And, and, and so uh, these coal camps, that experience I tried to describe in my book, Ron Eller and different people have described it before, but I, I'm just hoping that I've detailed some of the experiences that uh, are based in this critical area uh, of race uh, as uh, an element, an important element, an overlooked element sometimes in American life and history. That's that's awesome. I, I think uh, Neil would 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 agree. I can't I can't wait to read your book, and we we definitely appreciate you being on the show. We want to thank you. Well, I thank y'all for the opportunity to be on, and I look forward to meeting you personally. Thanks a lot, y'all.
Thanks so much. God bless you. You too. Appreciate it. Okay, see ya. Wow, Neil. What an amazing interview. What an amazing individual, you know? Just, just growing up in that time period to hear him talk about Lynch being this, this cosmopolitan of Kentucky, of that area, of Appalachia, you know what I mean? It's just hard, hard to fathom, especially in regards to how we grew up, where we grew up. The, the way that we know Lynch and Harlan County, I mean, I just can't imagine. Uh, but, you know, cool. It would have been awesome to be there during those times. And what a wealth of knowledge that uh, Dr. Turner is. I mean, you know, they say wisdom comes with age, but I feel like that man's had a lot more wisdom than me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we could – I could have talked to him for a long time, just at, picking his brain, asking him questions about what – you know, what like, like he talked about, what it was like growing up there. Um, what it was like leaving there and how much he, he still is attached to that place. Yeah. 606, man. Once it, once it, once it kind of infiltrates the mind, you know, we, we keep you intact. We keep you around. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt there. I don't know. I, I guess we could get, go ahead and get into of place tonight. You have anything? I was hoping you did. I'm always, I'm always put on the spot, man. And well, I'll bring something up. It just made me think while while Dr. Turner was talking. I was just thinking the entire time he was talking about the Harlan Bridge, what we refer to as the Harlan Bridge. You know, that bridge that goes from Pineville. You travel it once you get 119, over. 119, is that what it is? What's that? 19, 119. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the Harlan Bridge, you know, I grew up always going over it to baseball games or whatever we had, but I never thought about going over it to travel to, I guess I never knew the history of Lynch uh, the way that Dr. Turner described it. I, I mean, just this Mecca or this cosmopolitan, what Harlem was to New York, Harlem was to Kentucky. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's pretty cool to think about and something I never knew about traveling over that bridge, you know, that bridge brings back so much memories for me. And I know for you growing up. Yeah. It's uh, you know, anytime anybody mentions, you know, where are you going? I'm going through this place and that place. And then you turn left, go across the Harlem bridge. I mean, everybody knows where that is, right? <laughs> everybody knows where I mean, the Harlem bridge is. Yeah. Yeah. You, you go this way, you go around this stick, you look up, you see chain rock. Next thing you know, take a left, go on the Harlem bridge. The Harlem bridge. I don't know if it's in the song, You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive, but Pineville <laughs> and Harlan are definitely in there. And when they're talking about family moving somehow. to Pineville, they're talking about traveling over the Harlan Bridge. Got to get there somehow. Only yep. one way. So I, I just wanted to mention that, man. Um, I always think about when I, when I hear Harlan, I always think about the Harlan Bridge and the memories that I have. But now I'm going to think about it in a totally different light in regards to uh, the book that's coming out in regards to what Dr. Turner talked about. I mean, I just had no idea coming from, from that area. It's something that I should have known or should have been taught, but it's just incredible to hear from him uh, yeah, about no. how he grew up and, and what the the realization of, of the population of the, the black population in that area. And some people that are still there. Missed opportunity for us as kids growing up or, or missed opportunities for those educating us of, uh, you know, giving us that history at, at that age. But, you know, hopefully through this book, Dr. Turner can shed light on that circumstance back in Lynch and in those time periods. And, you know, Harlan is changing even so much today, uh, but hopefully they can feed off this history that he has written uh, and help integrate it with their kids currently. And uh, hopefully there's not a couple of guys like me and you talking about, I never knew those things, you know, 30 years from now. So uh, I'm really looking, really looking forward to reading uh, this book when it does come out. You know, I know it'll hit, hit us being from that area in a different way than it will most, but I, I think it's going to shed light on a, on a lot of things for a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely agree. I also want to give a shout out to there's another podcast out there. It's called Black in Appalachia. They talk about they they talk about a lot of these same same things, and it, it, it's just an interesting 
listen if you ever uh are interested it's another podcast you can listen to but i want to give a shout, shout out to them although i know they probably aren't listening um, i mean i'm sure they probably got like most of their content from our our podcast but, <laughs> yeah, or you know, whatever <laughs> i uh also wanted to say, you know, if you like what you're hearing from my podcast, check it out. Give us some reviews. Yeah. Uh, share it with your friends. Talk share it, it up. Share it with Ga- someone. Gas it up. Like we like to say, gas us up. Come on. If you have any ideas, send, shoot us an email. It's Appalachian Meets World at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yep. Yep. All right. Like I usually say, till next time. Peace. getting lighter, the air's getting thin, now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long, sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs, now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.